Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. This episode features John O'Nolan, the co-founder of Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your stories with the world. Hey, John, thanks for being on the show today with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start off by getting to know a bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, what did you study, and how did your passion for entrepreneurship develop? Ooh, that's a long and convoluted story. I'll try and give you the short version. Um, I'm English-Irish, but I kind of grew up all over the world. My parents uh, traveled around a lot, so I actually grew up in Holland, um, then I spent seven years in the Philippines, a uh, couple of years in the UK after that, and uh, since then I've, I've pretty much been on the road. Um, but originally, entrepreneurship was uh, very much in the background. I was studying music um, at university, and uh, eventually I figured out I was a pretty bad musician, but I was pretty good at making websites for my friends who were really good musicians. Um, so one thing kind of led to another and started doing more and more web-based things, and uh, here I am. You've been building websites, mainly blogs, with WordPress since 2005, a year after it was launched. Then you were the deputy head of the WordPress UI working group where you helped design and develop the WordPress user interface. How challenging was it to leave to work on your own thing? Um, not that challenging. Uh, so I was the, the deputy head of the user interface working group, um, which is a volunteer group of, of open source contributors. So it's not like I was employed by them and I had to make, take a big step into the world um, and make a big decision. Um, I was freelancing and um, building blogs for companies. That was my job. Um, but all of my free time was, was pretty much devoted to helping uh, build and, and create WordPress. But it was very much a, an on-the-side thing. So with contributors to WordPress, it's kind of, it comes and goes in waves. So you'll have a couple of people very active on one release, and then you know, those people have family commitments or something else to do in their lives, and a couple of other people step up for the next release. So it's always kind of um, a little bit in flux. Um, and at that particular point, when I was starting to think about Ghost, I was on a, a down down slope of, of the wave, if you will. So I hadn't been contributing that much to WordPress at the time. Um, I'd more been building client sites and, and realizing that um, maybe there was a gap for a new kind of tool. So a lot of things came together at the right time. And um, yeah, I was quite fortunate. Awesome. That's a great uh, transition because I was about to ask you. So you, you, you did found ghost.org. It's a simple, powerful publishing platform that basically allows you to just share your stories exclusively focused on blogging. We actually use it for Hack to Start. Um, it's, it, it's what powers our backend. So why did you decide to start Ghost? It was, um, it was a combination of things. It's actually, I had this idea rolling around in my head for a couple of years and I always um, pushed it away because it seemed um, too obvious and too easy or, or rather too cliched, I think, um, yeah. which is probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned from the journey is that um, the idea that seems so obvious to you that you shouldn't bother doing it is sometimes the one that's the right one that you should bother doing. Um, and it was really 
having spent so much time building blogs for myself, for other people, for companies, corporate blogs, magazines, all kinds of different um, sites, I always sort of ran into these same frustrations with um, the fact that WordPress had moved more and more towards a full-blown CMS, mm-hmm. and less and less time had been devoted to features for publishing. So it was this kind of, I kept bumping into these same roadblocks and at the same time bumping into a whole bunch of extra new features that I never needed. Um, So I had been wondering, you know, what would it look like if you rebuilt WordPress today and just made it for blogging and forgot about all the custom website building stuff? Um, And eventually I sat down and made some notes about what I would do and sketched up some designs of what it could maybe potentially look like. Uh, And I thought... Forget it. I'd like. I'll just get this idea out of my head onto a blog post, proverbial piece of paper, and then I can forget about it. Um, and I was thinking a few hundred people would maybe look at it and say, "Oh, that's an interesting idea." Um, but what actually happened was a quarter of a million people looked at it in the space of a week, wow. um, and my inbox exploded in my face. Um, so from that point on, I kind of realized uh, I've never had such a big reaction to an idea I've proposed before. So maybe I should. Um, Try and take this a little bit further. Try and do something more. Was that just up on your personal blog, or how did you get a quarter of a million people to look at it? It was just on my personal blog, and I sent a tweet, and um, and <laughs> the rest the, just happened. <laughs> yeah, it was a, one of those classic accidental viral growth stories. Never planned for if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're gonna get to some of the numbers behind Ghost in a little bit, but I'm just curious. Overall, over, over the past year and a bit, what are some of the biggest challenges uh, that you guys have had to overcome in creating this kind of open source based startup? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think there's there's two main ones. Um, the first is that we are a tiny, tiny team, um, six people, but up until beginning of the year, only three people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the scope of Ghost is absolutely huge. So we have um, something like eight or nine open source repositories, but there's also like 23 um, private repositories in the background, which people don't see, um, which power ghost.org, the marketplace, all the blogs, um, all the billing system, the user API, all the infrastructure in the back end that powers the pro service. And there's about three times as much code um, that we have just to run the infrastructure behind Ghost as there is in Ghost itself. Wow. So what looks like a little blogging platform made by three people is actually a little blogging platform and this giant practically social network in the background. Um, so having to spread ourselves over all of these different projects and manage them all and try and keep them in sync and uh, evolve them at a pace that matches up with people's expectations has been an enormous challenge. Um, the second one is the not-for-profit organization structure, which we have. Uh, there's tons and tons and tons of advice out there. Um, if you're US-based, how to incorporate a C-Corp. If you're UK-based, how to make a limited company and do a startup. Um, but for companies wanting to start up with a not-for-profit structure and try and make that function and learn about what the correct way to do that is, there's just very, very little information out there. So uh, we're pushing a lot of boundaries at the same time and learning a lot along the way. That's amazing. And so what are some of the biggest lessons that you've personally learned throughout this whole experience? Um, <laughs> that's a really great question. There's, there's been so many, but uh, most of them are small and, and, and day-to-day, just about how users behave. I think some of the most interesting lessons, uh, particularly this year, have been how um, the value of A-B testing is in testing the things you think you don't need to test, because mm-hmm. that's where you seem to learn the most. Um, everyone wants to do A-B testing on like what color button converts, and those things are generally inconclusive and pretty useless. Um, the things that we've found the biggest results from is really testing your assumptions that you think are true in the world. 
So thinking that a homepage, for example, for us, uh, you know, there's all these case studies from Basecamp and, and things about how having long-form marketing copy on a homepage um, converts better. It gives people lots of information, and the more stuff there is, the more they convert. Um, so I was testing different marketing copy on our homepage at one point and different images, different pieces of text, different testimonials, different logos, things like this. And a couple of them converted um, you know, 18 to 20% better, or 13 to 18% better, I think. Um, and then just for the hell of it, I threw in an extra variation on the A-B test where I just deleted the entire homepage except for the heading and the sign-up form. Mm -hmm. And the rest was just blank, just white, like not even a background image. Um, and that thing converted 45% better than any other variation. Wow. <laughs> and it was just me like going, okay, I need to, if I'm doing an A-B test, I need to always throw in something that I'm not even thinking is going to work. Uh, and there's been a few instances like that where it's been something that I thought was true and given in the world, and I tested that assumption and found it to be completely wrong because users don't necessarily behave the way you think they will. So not only is Ghost.org an open source product, but in April 29th, 2013, it launched as a crowdfunded project. How did you decide to go this route? Um, it was roughly the only possible uh, direction we could have gone. Um, obviously, wanting to do it as a not-for-profit organization means you can't take any sort of investment, be that seed, angel, VC. Um, it's not possible. There are no shares in the company, so there's nothing for them to purchase, as it were. Um, so the only option really available to us to try and see if we could get any funding for it was going to be crowdfunding. Um, I think we kind of hit that uh, the timing on that pretty well because crowdfunding had just sort of come up uh, for the last two years and entered slightly at the beginning of the mainstream. People know what Kickstarter is. People kind of trust Kickstarter with their, kick, uh, with their credit card details now. Um, and I think we, we touched on the timing, the crowdfunding aspects, and a couple of different um, points at the, the correct time, really. So it was definitely the right decision. If I was going to do it again, I'm not sure if I would do it through Kickstarter or if I would try and launch an independent crowdfunding campaign. That's a, a really interesting um, dynamic between how much benefit you get from being through a recognized website like Kickstarter or Indiegogo um, versus how many fees they take and how those two things balance each other out. Yeah, for sure. What were the motivations behind making a non-for-profit uh, right from the get-go? Transparency, essentially. Um, the thing that you see most commonly with open source projects is either they have no business model at all um, and they die off, even ones which have a massive amount of upfront funding or uh, development resources, unless there's something that can sustain a team to continue to develop and, and work on a product. Um, sooner or later, after a year or two, it kind of fizzles out and dies. And we've seen that happen too many times. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, there's a bunch of um, open source projects which are uh, sit kind of in the ownership realm of a venture-backed, very uh, well-funded startup. Um, and there's always this slight conflict of interest of who is in control of this open source project, which is supposed to be free and open and available to everyone? Is it the community who runs and uses the open source project, or is it this startup which has $300 million of investment and a bunch of shareholders who want to get a return on that investment? Um, and that conflict of interest leads to a lot of weird situations, uh, sometimes with open source projects being bought and sold, uh, which doesn't go down well, uh, sometimes just with them going in a direction that seems strange to users. Um, and having witnessed and seen a lot of that in other open source projects, uh, it bothered me a lot. But the model that I've always liked is what Mozilla and Firefox have. So Mozilla is a not-for-profit organization, Firefox is an open source product. 
Um, and it's very clear, you know that Mozilla's only goal is to improve the web. That's why they exist, and there's no ulterior motivations. There's no uh, board of investors in the background uh, wanting to know when the next exit's going to be or when the IPO is going to be. Um, and I think that clarity of clarity and transparency of what a company stands for and having a legal structure to back it up and say it's not all talk uh, is something that's becoming more and more valued as we sort of enter this digital age of security threats and privacy and, uh, and all the rest of it. People want to know um, what the real motivations are for the people who, A, are responsible for their data and B, in control of building things for them. With the Kickstarter campaign, what were some of the strategies that you, that you used? Um, strategies. It was Kickstarter campaign. I spent uh, many months beforehand researching how to make a Kickstarter campaign, and um, I spent even more time looking at existing successful Kickstarter campaigns to see what they did and what they had in common. Um, and I tried to, and this is kind of what I do with how I approach everything I build, is to, to look at everything that's out there, find the best parts of all of them, and then try and combine them into something new. Um, that's actually how you could summarize Ghost itself as a product pretty well. Um, so I looked at how they did their videos, um, how they structured their rewards, what things worked well, what things clearly didn't work well. And I just tried to put together what was in my eye the, uh, the ultimate combination of all of them. So there wasn't a, a, a definitive strategy other than to make the rewards very simple, uh, no deliverables. So every single one of our rewards was digital. There was no shipping or anything involved, which is quite important. Um, to make the description really clear, to make the, the video under or just around the three-minute mark but not longer, and to hit on a couple of points. Uh, so the experience of the team was important for the video as well as showing prototype of the product. Um, and lastly, giving people a call to action at the end and saying that this was only going to happen uh, if it has your support. Um, and just touching on all these individual points and combining them, um, I think, is, is what made the, the final product. Unfortunately, there's no particular, like, email these three people and then your Kickstarter campaign takes off. I think it's yeah. just a, a combination of a thousand little puzzle pieces kind of fitting together into something larger. Was it all done in-house by, by just you three? Uh, the Kickstarter campaign setup was basically just all me. Wow. <laughs> um, mm. So the month before, it took uh, over a month just to make the campaign page, just getting the description right, sending it out to... Uh, advisors and, and friends to, to see, you know, does this communicate this well or not? Um, then going out and shooting the video one day, just uh, I balanced my camera on a gorilla pod on the door of uh, my girlfriend's car at the time, <laughs> pointed it at my That's face, amazing. and that was that was the extent of our production budget. <laughs> so it was uh, it was very much DIY. That's great. So you, so you launched the launched the Kickstarter campaign with the initial goal of uh, twenty five thousand pounds, and you end up doing eight times your goal. So what, what yeah. did you do after your launch that made it this successful? Um, I think there's, there's only one thing I can point to that I consciously did that I think had a big impact. Uh, a lot of it was the same story as the blog post. It had this kind of viral growth effect. It hit a lot of pain points people were having at the correct time and spread very quickly. Um, and it was something people felt that was worth getting behind. And that was a big benefit. But the, the thing I did consciously do before the Kickstarter campaign was to make sure that I was in contact with a lot of the larger companies in the WordPress ecosystem. So WooThemes being the, the most obvious example of that and telling them, you know, I'm going to build this thing, I'm going to do a Kickstarter campaign, um, I really want you guys involved from day one. Um, and I had these emails and conversations sort of prepped three months in advance so that it wasn't going to be a shock when I launched Kickstarter campaign and said, hey, do you want to get involved in this? 
Um, and I knew the founders of most of these companies from uh, just chatting to them over the years and uh, occasionally doing some freelance work for them here and there. Uh, so I was able to get Wuthemes and Invato. I think they were the first two um, on day one within a few hours of the campaign launching. Uh, and that I think that added a lot of trust to the campaign, seeing two big, uh, very well-known brands getting behind it and saying, we believe in this and that it's going to be a thing, um, which led to quite a lot more partners getting involved quite quickly. And then that led to, you know, press um, talking about that sort of paradigm and then other users getting or other um, backers getting involved and, and seeing that whole thing. So that created um, a nice little spiral that sort of fed itself as it got bigger and bigger. Yeah, I remember coming across it, uh, you know, through the internet and, and just seeing that, that crazy growth and, and seeing those partners come on and, and all the press. Um, so, I mean, you guys, you guys obviously did a really, really great job with it, or I guess you specifically. <laughs> um, <laughs> did our best. Yeah, so, so maybe you can give us an update uh, on some of these figures just off the top of your mind. If you can't, no worries. Uh, I pulled them from one of the blog posts on, on the Go site. Uh, we'll link to that one just so people can, uh, can see all the figures there. Um, but basically, in, in April 2014, one year after uh, Ghost had launched, you did kind of a recap uh, for, for the period between November 2013 and, and April 2014. So that's six-month period. Um, and, and during that time, basically, Ghost had seen about 160,000 people sign up for an account, generated over a million page views a month, uh, had been downloaded over 272,000 times, um, your your open source repository, uh, I guess the public facing one. Now that now that we've learned that there's a few other ones, um, had a total of 2,150 code commits from about 125 developers all over the world, um, which made it the 38th most popular project of all time on GitHub, which is just incredible. Um, and then in the new year, January 2014, um, you guys launched uh, basically the Ghost Pro service, which which you know you guys handle all the setup and, and stuff like that, which makes Ghost even easier to use. Um, and you grew that just within that, that four month period to a user base of 2,300 customers, uh, pulling in a little bit over $175,000 in annual recurring revenue, um, growing about 30% month over month. So how did, how did a team of three people now, now a little bit bigger, um, build a community <laughs> that was a, able to achieve all of this? <laughs> with difficulty, <laughs> with a, with a lot of sleepless nights, I can yeah. tell you, um, yeah, no, it was it was a combination of really, really, really knuckling down and working hard to to get people involved um, and get the initial prototype out the door. We launched the prototype from the end of the Kickstarter campaign uh, to the first public or the first private launch, I think, within three months, and then the first public launch a month after that. Um, and then we had uh, uh, an agency called Atech Media in the UK who helped us out uh, building the initial setup of Ghost.org and and the back end. Um, and then it was just a case of trying to keep people happy, keep building things people are asking for, keep fixing bugs as they come up. Mm -hmm. um, now we are a little bit further along. So that was, uh, you're absolutely right, April of this year, a year since the Kickstarter campaign. Um, the business side of things is now well over $300,000 annual recurring revenue. Um, we're just coming up to 250,000 registered users. Wow. Um, and I think we're just coming up to 400,000 downloads uh, of the software itself. Um, and the growth is still good. We we changed up our, our pricing for the pro service uh, about six weeks ago, mm -hmm. which um, was an important milestone for us. Uh, it was figuring out where the price point was. No one had ever kind of created an, a Node application, Node.js application of this scale and, and tried to create a, a platform as a service business model around it before. So it was kind of a case of buying a bunch of servers and then going into a big black hole of figuring out. We didn't even know how many blogs we could fit on one server at, at the beginning. So. 
uh, we're pretty conservative with the initial pricing and then um, we updated that six weeks ago uh, to a more uh, reasonable level that's going to uh, give us a bit more of a healthy business going into the future. Um, and it's it's looking good. It's looking very good. After I think October 14th was exactly a year since the, the first public launch. So uh, that was kind of the official first birthday of Ghost being out in the wild. And now year two begins. That's awesome. Yeah, I remember last year, well, on October 14th or 13th or something like that, I managed to get... Uh, Get get an invite uh, somehow or, or logged in, and that's when I set up my first ghost blog. So it was awesome. Nice. It was so uh, it was so bare bones at that point. They they always say if you're not uh, embarrassed of your first prototype that you launched, you waited too long. Yeah, and, I uh, mean, yeah. I th- I thought it was still good. It it was just uh, you know playing around with something new and, and seeing all the excitement around it just all on different forums and people sharing information like this is how you set it up and this is how you do this and it was pretty yeah. awesome. I can say with full confidence that we were completely embarrassed of, of the first thing we shipped, but um, knew it had to be done. <laughs> well, it's gotten better very, very quickly. Actually, you mentioned that earlier that, that one of the biggest challenges was uh, was coming up with with updates and, and features at, at a pace that you know keeps the community happy. Um, and and I just over the last month, I think in October, you guys really pushed out you know five or six what what, what I would see as significant features. Um, everything from from cover um, you know post images. Um, to yeah. to meta tags and uh, the ability to customize that metadata that people have been asking for for a while. Um, yeah. So that that's really amazing pace. So I'm wondering how do, how do you guys how did you guys develop a community of developers that that would help you kind of push these things forward? Yeah, we were very fortunate with the um, the, the kind of well slightly high profile nature of the Kickstarter campaign attracted a lot of developers who wanted to to get involved and and help out and be a part of of starting something. Um, so we had lots and lots of interest of people who wanted to help out from day one. And it's just been a case, uh, and this is mainly Hannah, my co-founder, Hannah's job of, of nurturing that community and um, helping everybody uh, get involved and move in the same direction, kind of steering the, the development ship, um, if you will. And it's just been a case of knuckling down and, and getting stuff done. But yeah, the release cycle is an interesting one because initially we followed the sort of normal uh, open source software model, which is you know, build a bunch of stuff for three or four months and then release it and call it version X point X and uh, it has a bunch of new features and there's a big bang and um, and then maybe there's bugs and then they take ages to fix and inadvertently people either find the release cycle too short and they hate updating so often or they find it too long and they're always asking like where are the new features. So a couple of months ago we, we decided to switch to more of uh, an agile release um, schedules. So every couple of weeks, once we've finished a feature, fixed a couple of bugs, we just ship it. Um, and anyone who's on the, the Ghost Pro service, uh, we have uh, systems in the background that will automatically update all of their blogs, so they don't even need to do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and for anyone who's self-hosting, we just do the up not- update notifications at a reasonable intervals, so every uh, two to three months. So they, unless there's a big security fix, they don't need to update, but if they want to, they always can. Um, and that's allowed us to move way faster. So we can ship individual things like cover images. Like this week we did post autosave, which is something that's been uh, a long, long time coming. Um, and just be able to announce uh, things we're iterating on and improving on on an ongoing basis. And it keeps keeps Ghost in mind as well. People don't forget about it. It's, it's more like GitHub. You know, there's always something new just around the corner. And it's um, we've gotten a lot of really, really positive feedback from that. Yeah, absolutely, and I know, and I know that you guys keep the GitHub page uh, kind of uh, very active with the upcoming milestones and what's what's about to be fixed and stuff like that. So I think that's that's incredible. I check in pretty often, and I like the uh, the emails <laughs> yeah. that I get, just you know, what's coming and stuff like that. 
<laughs> so one of the uh, one of the most uh, I guess recent posts, I think probably earlier this week or, or late last week, depending on on what day today is, <laughs> um, you actually uh, managed to increase the onboarding conversion rate by about a thousand percent by just adding a kind of I guess a, a, a walkthrough wizard. So how did you guys come up with that, and and you know how did you achieve a thousand percent? Yeah, that was a that was a really fun one to look at. Um, it was actually. Uh, slightly inspired by um, a startup called Help Scout, who do uh, email support software, help desk software, which is really cool. And I was listening to this 15-minute podcast they did. I can't remember the name of the podcast. It was something like Growth Hackers or Growth Podcast, something like that. And uh, they were talking about how they increased their conversion rate 300% just by um, sending people emails uh, and getting them to kind of move through the steps of, of setting up their mailbox and, and using Help Scout. And by helping people kind of set up the product for the first time, uh, they saw a, a massive increase in how much value people got from the products. I listened to this and I thought, well, that's a pretty interesting idea, but I wonder what, what the event, so for them it was like create a first mailbox, uh, receive a first email, respond to it, and I was like, well, what are our events going to be? What are the things that people are going to um, really get value from and notice? Um, uh, so I, I put a bunch of tracking events into um, our backend software to just see uh, now we, we see like if someone uploaded a theme, if they published a post, um, we just have normal little JavaScript events that fire and recorded all of those for about three months just to get a big backlog of data um, and then started comparing them like uh, people who completed event A, do they subscribe more or less than people who didn't complete event A, so let's say uploaded a theme um, and just putting a whole bunch of events side by side and seeing which ones had an effect on the eventual likelihood of someone to, uh, to convert to a paying customer. And what we found was that people who uploaded a custom theme um, for their blog, so a nice design uh, that kind of personalized it for their own use, uh, were 10 times more likely to sign up to be a paying customer at the end of the trial. Um, so the average of people who didn't complete any event like that was 1% uh, conversion. So it was 10 times more likely that that uh, person who completed that kind of personalization of the Ghost software um, would get enough value from it that they would feel like it was worth signing up to uh, for being a customer. So once we learned those, and there were three, it was um, uploading a theme, adding a custom domain, and then publishing a first post. People who'd done those three had a really a significant bump in, in how much they kind of got, got it, had the kind of aha moment of, I see how this works now. Um, so yeah, we set up a couple of emails to, if you haven't completed those events, then we send you an email and say, hey, here's how you uh, upload your first theme, here's how you can add a custom domain. Um, it will just take a couple of minutes, and we're going to walk you through it. And adding those those steps in has had a really really positive effect um, on how we onboard people. That's great. It's such an amazing story to see the the growth of Ghost over. I think it's a year and a half now, and I I still can't believe that you know it's been this long. I, I feels like yesterday that uh, I saw the Kickstarter <laughs> campaign. So what's next for Ghost as a publishing platform and the community? Oh, lots and lots of things. Um, the thing <laughs> the thing people. Uh, we probably get the most requests for right now, other than autosave, because that bugged a lot of people, and rightly so. It was just embarrassing that our posts weren't automatically saving, but now they do, so that's great. Um, but the, the other thing people ask the most for is the dashboard, because uh, that's the one thing that was in the Kickstarter campaign which isn't in the, the actual software yet. Um, and the reason it isn't is because it would be very easy to ship a very bad dashboard, which would be very hard to iterate on. Um, and it's very hard to make a good dashboard that's actually going to be stable and um, uh, stand the test of time and actually be useful to someone. So that's very much on the horizon. That's going to tie in quite closely with apps, so having allowing third-party integrations. Nice. 
Um, so, and then, sorry, go for it. I was going to say, so has the design of uh, the dashboard changed since the Kickstarter campaign? Uh, we were actually just discussing that this morning. I think it's going to be very similar with a couple of aesthetic uh, tweaks. So we've we've kind of gotten rid of the the brown background that was initially on on everything, and they're going for a very slightly more minimal look. But I think it's going to be pretty similar. That's great. I remember seeing that uh, that dashboard and fell in love with it right away. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it looked pretty awesome. So, so are, where are you guys? What kind of third party apps are you guys planning? Is there anything uh, percolating around that uh, so far? Or Tons. It's one of the most common uh, requests I get is is from uh, awesome companies uh, who want to to integrate with us in, in some way and uh, kind of connect. I think the the three most obvious ones and the ones we get asked for uh, lots are probably Buffer, Discuss, and Shopify, um, all of which are really really cool startups and would be so cool to integrate with Ghost so that you can if you have a shop you can embed a product in a blog post or you can schedule your, your blog post to automatically tweet and go to Facebook once you publish it. Um, and to just have super simple like on-off button comment integration. Um, things like that uh, I can't wait for because it's just going to allow Ghost to extend um, into all sorts of different places um, and different companies. Obviously, it also opens up a, a whole market of new users of those users of uh, those other software products um, to be exposed to Ghost and vice versa, which should be really exciting. Absolutely, that's really cool. I'll look, I'll look uh, forward to it. So, Definitely. besides besides Ghost, what are some of your favorite uh, you know devices, apps, tools, or books that, that you're really obsessed with? Oh, that's a good question. Um, actually, I've got two at the moment. There's well, there's one that's going to be so boring because I'm sure everyone is giving the same answer at the moment, which is Slack. <laughs> yeah. Um, Slack.com, obviously, uh, or SlackHQ.com. I forget. Uh, just awesome. Uh, we use that to, to manage our distributed team. Um, do all of our internal. Uh, chat, communication, everything, and just love it. Absolutely love it. It's fantastic. Um, the other one, which was more recent, is Squiggle, uh, S-Q-W-I-G-G-L-E, um, which is, again, really useful for remote teams. Uh, and it's just kind of this always-on dashboard, which uses your webcam to take a photo of your face every one to five minutes, depending on what you set. And so you can kind of have this, this virtual office on your second monitor or whatever, and you can see everyone else's face um, and what they're doing, if they're working, or if they have gone for lunch, you can kind of you get a more personal experience. So it feels like everyone is in an office working together. And uh, initially, most people, me included, look at that concept and go, "Well, that's a little bit creepy having a webcam watch me the entire day." Um, but once you start using it, it's actually really nice. Uh, it creates this different dynamic. You you know, you're talking to people in chat the whole day. You have the little avatar, and but it's still text. You don't get any sort of sense of it being a human being. Um, but we, well, I personally have Slack and Squiggle side by side, and when I'm talking to one of our team, then I'm looking at their face, and I see that they're there at their computer, and they're a real person, and it really creates this um, human, much more human aspect to distributed team uh, management, which has been uh, very cool for us. Awesome. Where's the, where's the team base for you guys? All over the place. So we have uh, three in the UK, uh, one in Austria, I'm in Egypt, in Africa, and we have one in the US, in Michigan. Cool. Well, I really appreciate your time for you know speaking with us today, uh, John. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes content, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.